Hello and welcome to the Sky Time Podcast with me, Simon Cousins. The original plan was for this podcast to be a promotional celebration of Sky's tourism industry. We hope to share Sky stories with the world and provide an insight into the companies offering great visitor experiences. And then, along came coronavirus, lockdown and the devastation of the first part of the season, at least. When this is all over and travel restrictions are lifted, we will return to promoting the Skytime experience. But for now, we want to use this podcast to share information and experiences as we all try to navigate our way through this unprecedented crisis. Each week, we'll aim to provide the information you need to access business support. We'll profile island businesses and find out how they're getting through the crisis. We'll interview politicians and industry leaders and celebrate the great community initiatives taking place across Sky that really show that we are all in this together. Through the wonders of modern communication tools, we will attempt to achieve all of this without breaching any of the self-isolation or social distancing protocols. My first guest is Alistair Danta, Project Manager of Sky Connect. He's here to explain what's being done to support Sky businesses through the crisis. Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, Sky Connect, it's the destination management organisation for Sky and neighbouring areas, a very word, wordy title. Um, we're in lockdown now, so I guess you've got nothing to do, have you? Uh, hardly, hardly. Um, we were already very busy because the, the, the winter is a time we've got the, the, the opportunity to work closely with businesses. Um, and the last few months we've been working on various various projects, which unfortunately have now had to, had to, had to close. Um, closed down. The the work we've been involved in since the crisis um, sort of struck has essentially uh, centred around gathering data uh, that we can feed to the public authorities such as Visit Scotland, industry bodies such as the uh, Scottish Tourism Alliance and our elected representatives in order that they can have a a, um, a, a sort of data-based bank of information on what is going on so it's not anecdotal it's not opinion it is hard data of what is actually happening um secondly to that is now that there are some basic support schemes in place which are which are very welcome uh it's helping to make them work identify the anomalies that exist and there are a lot of them especially because we are a fairly remote rural and seasonal economy how many businesses are you surveying on a weekly basis? Um, it, we've uh, recently been through a, a sort of fairly heavy segmentation exercise because we sort of uh, we, we, we had a sort of uh, we, we've got a database of about a thousand businesses that we work with. Um, these break down into hotels about fifty two, bed and breakfasts two hundred, self catering four hundred, arts and crafts plus or minus seventy. Outdoor activities, 30, boat trips, 22, tours, 27, attractions, 12. And then after that, we're getting into retail uh, and services. So, you know, a significant number. 
the situation with the crisis is changing day by day. So um, every time you get a piece of information, it is almost out of date five minutes later. But one of the standout stats from last week's uh, survey was that um, 80 percent of the businesses who responded to the survey uh, and had staff on furlough said that they didn't have enough cash to last another couple of months until the government's job retention scheme kicks in and uh, they start getting cash from the government. Um, I mean, yes, that was extremely worrying. And when you compare that to the uh, the sort of national UK figure, which came out earlier this week, which I think is about, at about 20%, you can just see how uh, adversely, uh, what in a, a, an adverse position we're in. Uh, and how serious the situation is in in the rural areas. Other key areas that businesses uh, are talking to you about, Alistair, uh, that are causing a lot of grief, the online travel agents, for one. Um, The online travel agents um, seem to have been behaving in a fairly high-handed manner and ignored the fact that uh, as operators, um, people like to have a good relationship with their guests and clients before they arrive. Uh, and so many had taken the initiative to contact uh, everyone that had booked with them for the next couple of months, at least. Uh, I know most people had done it up to the end of May um, to uh, make alternative arrangements, say, look, we're going to have to close now, but we're quite happy to give you a credit voucher uh, and move your booking to later in the year if that would be of interest. Um, that was obviously getting a very good response because people uh, saw that as, a, as, as an option that would help both parties. Uh, and what seems to have happened with certain uh, certain of the agencies, the OTAs, is they've unilaterally just sort of cut that and repaid all the money um, to the uh, to, to, to the customers themselves. So cash flow is such an important issue for, for all of these businesses. And the banks don't seem to be stepping up and helping at this moment in time. Yeah, I, ca- cash flow is, is 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 so problematic because because I keep repeating that we're, we're, we're seasonal. Um, I think the banks are in a difficult position, whereas the local branches understand exactly what's going on. Uh, the banks that we have in in the UK are essentially five. They are five large institutions, highly centralised, uh, and they will not be geared up for dealing with remote rural areas. There's so much still to come out. I'm sure we'll be uh, talking week after week about the uh, the issues as they arise in, in a very much a changing uh, situation. But looking ahead, do you think as a result of coronavirus and, and this lockdown that at the end of it all, we're going to see a very different tourism industry in Sky? We, we, we will definitely see a very different tourism industry. Um, and that's why there has to be a lot more in whatever we do have. We have to have uh, major financial input now. If we spiral down um, and just kind of to say well, we'd lock down, lock down, then you can start again. That is just not possible. We've got to take a different attitude. We've got to look at it as that we are a going concern. We've got the assets. We've got the people. We can trade our way out of this, provided We don't lose everything we've got, which is what's going to happen right now. Alastair, thank you very much, and we'll speak again in the coming weeks. Thanks very much.
Now, each week I want to share the stories of the people behind the businesses that have made Sky one of the jewels in the crown of Scottish tourism. This week, my guests are Deirdre and Gary Curley, who run the iconic Sligahan Hotel at the foot of the Coolan. Welcome to the Sky Time podcast. Hi. Hi, Simon. Thank you. Now, Deirdre, the Sligahan, it's been in your family for a long time. Take me back through the family's connection with the hotel. Yeah, so um, it's been in my family. We're now the fourth generation to run it. Um, so over 100 years, it's been in our family. So my grandfather's um, uncle, he had it originally and left it to my grandfather, who he ran um, the business with his wife, my granny, um, followed by my own parents um, and now us. So, yeah, it's been a long time in the family, but it's been pretty amazing to see how it's transformed over the years and how lucky we are to have such an iconic hotel in the family. Was it always your intention to come back and run it? Yeah, I think, you know, even growing up, you know, when I used to kind of waitress or do housekeeping, I always thought, oh, one day I'd quite like to be the boss in here. <laughs> um, but um, it took, took a career change down in Glasgow. Um, we spent 10 years down in Glasgow before we decided it was the right time to come up. But yeah, it's always kind of, been a bit of a dream um, but it was just waiting for the right chance for us to actually be able to kind of leave our lives in Glasgow and come up here. It's a very different life uh, uh, being a hotel owner to being an actress and an author. Yeah I know I thought I don't know everyone was saying oh when you go to Sky it's going to be this perfect lovely relaxed place you can write your books what a romantic place to write books and no you don't really have time to write books when you run a hotel <laughs> so um yeah, but yeah, a bit different. And Gary, your career was very different before as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing is, is that I, I grew up around hotels because my mum worked in the local hotel okay. for, God, about 35 years. So I kind of grew up <laughs> around that hotel um, in Erskine. It was the Erskine Bridge Hotel. Um, so I always had that kind of connection there. Obviously, when, when I met Deirdre, um, she was kind of studying acting. I was a musician at the time, so I was in a band and, and playing out um, gigs and DJing and things like that. Um, but I'd also had a career that I'd been building in the pharmaceutical sector um, as well. So when we had Oscar, um, I kind of threw myself into that. Um, and don't get me wrong, I loved loved working in, in, in that world for, for a while. Um, but I always wanted to do something a little bit more, I guess, uh, creative. And, and I think that coming into the hotel industry um, kind of gave us that opportunity. I suppose it's a difficult decision to make uh, with such an iconic hotel. Everybody who's visited Sky knows the Sligan Hotel. Do you leave it as it's always been or do you put your own stamp on it? I think that is, that is a, a really, really good question. And I think, you know, we asked ourselves that a lot. Um, when, when, when we came here. Um, I think that it is so iconic and um, it, it's got a lot of meaning attached to it in terms of what it means to people in the community, all different generations that have been coming for years, um, just the location and everything else. Um, so obviously our kind of ethos around it was, you know, what, what is the heart of what this place actually means to the family and to the people of Sky and to the people that have been coming here for years? And we just really wanted to hone in on that. And, and I think what we kind of got was that, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very friendly hotel. So Deirdre, coming into this season, uh, were you full of optimism looking forward? 
Yeah, so it was such an exciting year that we had, like in terms of just business-wise, things were looking really great. Like we'd spent quite a lot of time doing a lot of kind of social media over winter, getting people excited about the new rooms. Um, one thing that I'm really passionate about is weddings. And, you know, in the first, well, we, we had two weddings in February before we um, had to shut the door. But um, we had actually like 10 weddings in between February, March and April, um, seven of them, which we've had to obviously postpone for the moment. Um, so, yeah, like we were so excited, you know, that mad rush um, trying to get the bedrooms ready at the end and um, opening the doors kind of on Valentine's weekend and just having like our team back after like our short break and all the vibes were great and exciting. And, and we'd literally just won the awards for best pub and bar in the highlands and islands and that was at the highlands and islands uh, yeah. tourism awards um, and, and we also were nominated then for scottish thistle awards so the whole team were were buzzing for this year you know and um, they'd put a lot of work in last year um and that most of the team from last year came back and we were really really delighted that everybody decided to stick with us this year and we had so many great plans for this year and, and we were all kind of like chomping at the bit for the season to, to, to crack on, on yeah. you know. And did um, you have any concept that coronavirus was going to have such a big impact? I don't think we expected such a big impact in the beginning. I feel like actually in the beginning it was some of our suppliers saying, oh, they, they can't get this item or they can't get that item. Or one of our weddings actually that was... Um, in the first week in March, um, which by that point we were sort of feeling it a wee bit like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. But I really feel like it came on so quickly. Um, it was literally like within two weeks, everything had turned like massively. And it was just kind of a really crazy situation as kind of business owners to kind of be in. Um what do you think, Gary? It was yeah. Well, so, so, what yeah. steps did you take, Gary, uh, when it was clear that you were going to have to close? Yeah. So, it was it was clear to us. I think on the Friday night when they talked about you know the idea that bars and restaurants should close, they didn't specifically mention hotels. But you know, reading into what had been happening and kind of getting a sense of of where this could be going. We kind of felt that it was it was kind of it would be irresponsible for us to remain open at that point. Um, so we made the call on that Friday night and and kind of let people know. Although we were kind of expecting it at that point that you know the restrictions would tighten, um, so we were all kind of prepared for it in our in our head. Um, and then the guests who were staying that night, um, basically once they had finished their stays within. The day or two, mm -hmm. we closed the doors on the the Monday morning, yeah. um, and 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 it's been closed ever since. You've got what is it, twenty seven staff? Yeah. What did you do with the staff? I mean, the, a lot of them live at the hotel, don't they? Yeah. The difficulty when when things like this happen, it's you know nobody knows how long this is going to last for. Obviously, there's there's support coming in from the government as well, which you know is it, it, helpful in some ways. Um, you know, the, the first thing that you worry about when, when there's issues, whether it's, you know, with the business or whether it's, you know, things like this, is the staff. Because obviously we've got such a great bond with our staff. They're like they're loyal and they're fantastic people as well. And we care about them deeply. So, 
you know, we kind of, I guess, as soon as this crisis started to unfold, we, we did already start to think about, you know, how can we actually get through this if it lasts more than two or three months? Um, but I think that the, the, the job retention scheme is going to help with that a lot. So we've we've managed to furlough pretty much every staff member who was eligible for furlough. And that's kind of where we're at just now. And I guess we just review it uh, month by month as the situation kind of evolves. And Deirdre, the, the staff are not just sitting on their hands during this uh, this time. They're actually getting involved in helping the community, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So our, all our staff, um, or certainly the ones um, that can drive at the moment, have kind of offered their services, whether it's dog walking or, you know, helping with the food bank, um, helping deliver food or do kind of some elderly people shopping. Like, they're always kind of so kind of willing to help. In terms of yourselves, the business, are you getting the support that you need from government to survive this? I feel like at the moment there's still a lot more that the government need to do, especially for smaller businesses, rural businesses like us. Like we've just come out of winter where we've been closed. You know, we, we were open for about a month. Um, now we're closed for well, we don't know how long. And then, you know, before you open up again, you're back into winter potentially. So in terms of business support out there, furloughing is great. But as far as we're concerned in terms of our business specifically, that's really the only help that we're getting at this point. Because just because of rate value and things like that, we don't actually qualify for any grants. So it's really, really difficult. And I can understand how difficult it must be for so many businesses in our position. So how long can you keep staff on furlough, realistically? It's such a difficult question to answer because, obviously, the optimist in me wants to believe that, you know, we'll understand more about the situation in the coming weeks and months and, you know, we'll know when restrictions will begin to be relaxed. But, you know, when you look at, you know, what's actually happening, um you really start to think that, you know, it, there might be a chance that we might not even open again this summer. Um, you know, so it's very it's very worrying, I think, not just for us, but for all the businesses affected by this, um, especially in hospitality. We, we just need to kind of take it month by month and, and keep reviewing it. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll obviously do what we can to support our staff for as long as we possibly can. But, but we also need to we, support the business and we yeah. need there to be a business there to open up at the end of all of this. Uh-huh. Um, so the staff know and, and we know that, you know, there, there might be more difficult decisions um, in, in the coming kind of months as, as things start to evolve. Looking optimistically over the next few months, if you are able to open up again, if the restrictions are lifted... Have you got plans in place for how you're going to market the hotel and market Sky and get people back here? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we were working on, actually, um, we were ready to launch our kind of new website at the beginning of April. So we're still working on that in the background, um, kind of with kind of updated kind of marketing and media. We will continue, like our social media presence is actually really quite strong. So we'll continue even while we're kind of in this lockdown situation to market um, kind of Sky and, you know, the favourite things that staff like to do, things like that. You would think that coming out of this type of crisis, once once the restrictions start to get relaxed and we know it's safe to travel and it's safe to come out, that, 
you know, people will will want to get away. Um, but I also think that the impact of the situation is going to be long lasting and it will affect people's attitudes to travel and, and tourism as well. But like Deirdre says, you know, focusing on the positives, I think that, you know, we, we will get tourists from the UK, probably more tourists from the UK looking to come and experience Sky. We'll be welcoming them. And we'll probably change our marketing slightly to, to focus on the UK market as well. Um, but like like Deirdre says, you know, although um, we're not kind of proactively marketing right now, we are preparing for when things start to ease up so that we can start to market again. Gary Curley and Deirdre Curley, thank you very much for sharing your story and, and best of luck. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Gary and Deirdre spoke about the job retention scheme that means that they may be able to keep staff on the books and the government will cover wages for three months. It sounds a simple scheme, but there are many complexities to it. In an attempt to unravel some of the issues, I'm joined by employment law specialist Ewan Smith from McLeod and McCallum, otherwise known as Mac and Mac. Welcome to the Skytime podcast, Ewan. Hello, Simon, and hello, everybody else. Now, we need to make it clear that because this crisis is changing hour by hour, minute by minute, that um, what we're going to talk about here, the job retention scheme, is the situation as we find ourselves in at the end of the first week of April. Things may move on when people are listening to this uh, at a future date, but this was the position at the end of the first week of April, right? Yeah, absolutely. The actual theory behind this is a very good one. And we're seeing, obviously, with universal credit being overloaded as it is, um, it really was a very good thing that they did. And ultimately, for the economy, presumably, they want people to spend and they didn't want people made redundant and perhaps just having perhaps increased access to benefits if they could ever ring through and get an application process because they were in work. Um, because what that would have done is, well, even if your old employer could then take you back on in a few weeks, a few months' time, your continuous service has been broken. Um, so I think it really was a very good, really, really good concept. Um, <laughs> and and there is some meat starting to appear on the bones, but I think much will depend on on where things now go from here. The first thing that we had to get used to uh, with this announcement was uh, a new word in the dictionary for uh, most people in the UK, furlough. It's a, it's a US term, but what does it actually mean and, and why has the Chancellor chosen to use that word? Yeah, for, frankly, it was a bit of a new one on, on me and other people who work in the same area as me as well. I, really all it means is what it what we all know or what you know those who've been looking into it, to anybody else who's been looking into it knows all perhaps as much as I do, um, it's a new one on employment law practitioners. It doesn't have a, a technical meaning. Um, the only meaning that we can really subscribe to is, is in terms of the announcement and the guidance that's followed. But what essentially it is, is a leave of absence, effectively, in inverted commas. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of the scheme. Who and in what circumstances is the scheme aimed at? It's really, without limitation, really, it would seem to be open to all employers. And as I say, provided there can be some sort of connection between the pandemic and the layoff or redundancy, but certainly covering all businesses and without exemption, including charities. And it raises particular concerns for some industries um, as opposed to others. And presumably we'll get on to that in terms of Sky. But in essence, it's open to everybody. 
you alluded there to some specific problems in Sky, and it didn't take long before the uh, the hotel sector in Sky was jumping up and down saying, but what about our seasonal employees? We've just come through winter. They've uh, been on, on a break. We don't tend to hire a lot of them until the beginning of March. What are we going to do for them? Yeah, it's, it's a good point, um, Simon. It's a very good point. And um, indeed, I think um, Ian Blackford's local MP has, I think, the last day or two written to uh, the Chancellor about this particular issue. The, the, the crucial point here, the line in the sand, if you like, is this uh, 28th of February date. Um, so if you hadn't set up a payroll system or you hadn't had a particular staff member on your payroll by 28th February, um, there is just an absolute watershed there. Um, so if somebody was to be a new member of staff with a first shift starting, say, 1st of April or even in even March time, um, yeah, that is the line in the sand. So for employers, um, there, there just simply isn't the ability to make a claim in respect of those workers. Um, and indeed, it might even go further than that, because if these are people who are repeat seasonal workers, but perhaps do other work in the, the winter, and therefore were taken off the payroll um, at some point, perhaps at the end of last summer or in the autumn time, and weren't then put back on the payroll um, by the 20th of uh, February, there is obviously a clear issue there. I suppose it is encouraging that the government is prepared to move and adapt uh, their policy in that we now know that uh, for seasonal workers, the benefit will be that um, uh, in terms of pitching what their wages are, that you, you're able to average out your earnings over the period of a year or the period that you were employed for. Yeah, indeed. For the, the variable hours, I think there is uh, a good common sense um logic to that and that's something and um, you know they've done a lot of correct things so and this is such a hard thing to try to introduce at short notice and it would have been possible to have you know planned absolutely for something like this so there's a lot of good things and that's one of them all workers if you like seasonal casual even annualized it appears are included provided they were paid via payroll so there's not this distinction that you sometimes see in employment law between who's an employee who's a worker so all, all that is good and as you say um, if someone isn't got a sort of flat uh, rate pay and works throughout the year, um, you do have that option. So I think it's in terms of those who are on variable pay, which includes seasonal, it would be, as you say, the higher of the average over the 12-month period or taking the corresponding pay period um, in the previous year. A few quick questions for you. Um, one being... What's the legal position with furloughed workers doing bits and pieces of work? For example, in the hotel <laughs> sector, uh, if there's a bit of maintenance needed doing or somebody needs to be in the building for security purposes and insurance, what's the yeah. law saying here? Yeah, the law's not really saying anything about a lot of this. Um, we just, it's all new to, to all of us. Um, so I think we just have to go on the guidance, certainly with this particular question. And I think the position has to be don't do it um, you know just don't do it don't allow your staff to do really any form of work as far as that is possible and um, you know because at the end of the day as I say it's trust it's trust on the UK government and HMRC's side because they're thinking well no employers in their right mind's going to furlough somebody if they can have them working and generating value to the business so equally you know they will clamp down very hard on anyone who's seeking to abuse that and having it both ways I can sympathise with that completely, but I would have to say, don't do it. Uh, just don't do it. 
What are the rights of employees who've been put on furloughed? Do they retain all of their their existing rights? Yeah, absolutely. And um, that, that's one of the, the sort of keystones of the scheme, really. So they'll continue to accrue, uh, well, continue to accrue holiday, although it's not been expressly confirmed. Um, there's a slightly more complicated question about whether uh, employers are entitled to put people on holiday during the period of time, um, which there's differing legal opinions on, um, which I won't go into the sort of technical detail of, but they ought to be accruing at the very least holiday and they're still accruing their service. What's the position for employers who furloughed their staff but discover at some point over the next month or two that they no longer have the cash flow to be able to pay the the wages until the government funding comes through and they have to make their staff redundant. Can they make them redundant in this situation? Yeah, and I would say certainly uh, um, not before consulting your um, friendly employment lawyer, but um, yes, there's no barrier to that. Now, again, views are tending to vary, but there's cer- certainly no strict barrier. So that's the first thing. Whether or not you know, there is a requirement to act reasonably under legislation and, you know, whether or not while furlough is available, um, you know, you ought to at least give it time, start making applications, see if the money comes in before you rush judgment. But equally, if money is being paid out week after week and there still is no sign of the scheme being up and running, the question then becomes, well, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of money left. So, um, of course, it's reasonable for me to make take such drastic action if it's absolutely necessary to protect the business. And looking on the the more positive side, if uh, businesses are able to get through this period of time with uh, with no cash coming in other than government support and restrictions are, are lifted, how easy is it to take staff off furlough and back into employment and get the business running again? It should, should be relatively straightforward. There's a minimum three-week period that a furlough period has to be. Um, so flowing from that, it, you could, for, for example, actually exchange one staff member out and put one in, subject to perhaps giving due consideration to, to why you're doing that. And, um, you know, but equally, if that's with a view to being equitable, if someone was in the same role and it was just to give, um, and there was only one role um, available for people to do and there was two people who performed that role, then it would be quite equitable just to give someone three weeks, give the other three weeks off, if it could be justified that, you know, things aren't uh, back up and running and that the implications of this are meaning that one of those would have been laid off otherwise, then then that is possible. There is a lot of logic and in some ways it's sort of quite, in theory, quite easy to use and very pragmatic and very radical, as I said earlier. The last point probably just to make is this is all theory and none of it is yet really been tested and, and actively put to the test. And that will be the real, um, the real sort of proof in the puddings. Ewan Smith from uh, McLeod and McCallum, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers now. And finally, I want to end this and every Skytime podcast during the crisis with a positive story. Sometimes, crisis brings out the best in people, and there are so many stories of how communities on Sky are pulling together to help the vulnerable in their time of great need. I'm joined by Catherine de Vries of Slate Community Trading to tell us what the staff and volunteers of Armadale stores have been doing to help the community. Catherine, welcome to the Skytime podcast. 
Thank you. Alongside the NHS and emergency services, the retail sectors really had to step up during the crisis. How has coronavirus impacted on Armadale stores? Well, we've had to adapt very quickly to a continually changing situation. Gradually, we we started to see fewer customers turn up at the shop, but the customers are still there in the community needing their shopping. So we'd start to see new faces, maybe a son or a daughter come to do their shopping for for their, their mum or their dad. And then gradually we, we saw that we had to move more to a, a delivery service, um, which is all very new to us. We're used to speaking to people face-to-face at the counter. The added difficulty for you, Catherine, is that uh, you're in a temporary shop at the moment. Describe your, your working environment. Well, it's a very small shop. It's a shipping container. And although we managed to fit quite a lot of stock in there, it is very challenging for the staff um, trying to dodge each other all the time. But particularly now, where there's this two-metre distancing um, policy that we've all got to try and stick to, that makes it even harder, which is why we're starting to serve out of the window wherever it's possible. Um, and we tried restricting um, restricting it to one customer um, in the shop at a time. That will probably change as we adjust to the situation. Um, also cleaning, keeping it clean um, in a small space, getting our cup of tea hygienically, um, storing all the produce we want to send out for delivery. That's all. That all makes it really quite difficult just now. And how have customers reacted to the, the new rules that you've had to put in place? Well, the customers, to be honest, have been fantastic. Um, we're all adjusting. Um, everyone everyone copes with these situations slightly differently. Everyone has their own their own worries, but the customers have been really, really understanding. I don't even think I've heard a negative comment, um, only positive comments. So even though customers are having to wait outside maybe for 10 minutes sometimes, I don't hear them complaining. They're just grateful that the service is here. So, so how does the delivery and collection service work? So people phone up. Um, if they want a delivery, they phone up on a Monday um, and the deliveries are packed. The products are packed in boxes for each customer on a Tuesday and then taken in the, the community bus um, by a volunteer driver. Um, we decided to close the shop on a Tuesday to customers because it was taking so much time to get these de- deliveries prepared that that was the only um, reasonable way to do it. People can also phone in later in the week um, for a collection on a Friday afternoon, um, and a few people have done that. So one family member can come and they don't have to wait too long. The order's almost ready when they arrive. And how easy has it been to get people to volunteer to help you putting orders together and delivering to the community? We, we have a, a huge list of people who have volunteered, which is really fantastic. Again, the issue is space. So although we'd ha- like to have lots of volunteers at a time, it's not physically possible, but it's just really good to know that we have several names, several people we can call on if we need them. Um, lots of people, don't they're not working anymore because they've there's nothing to go to. So they're really keen to put their energy into something else. 
And I guess it's not just about shopping, is it? It's it's a way of um, uh, keeping in touch with vulnerable members of the community and making sure that they're okay. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we have a few we have a few regular elderly people who we've not seen for quite a while now, and that's that's something we all miss. But we know we know their family members who are coming to pick up for them or if they don't have family we know they they have been phoning in and we've been getting their order sent to them um sometimes we phone just to check up on them find out that, that they're okay so if anybody in the slate community could use the service would like a shopping delivery how do they go about it I think the best thing is if they have email, the best thing is to send an email. So that would be trading at slate.org.uk. Um, otherwise, if they don't have access to email, they could phone in on 844249 or 844765. And we'll help them in any way we can. Catherine de Vries, thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Well, that's almost it for the first edition of the Sky Time podcast. If you have a topic you want us to cover or a question to ask of any of our experts, you can email me, simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. I know times are tough out there, but if you'd like to sponsor the Sky Time podcast, you can get in touch at the same address, simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, and stay in touch with your family and neighbours. Achievar.